podcast, the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 67. I'm Joel and welcome to you if you're a coach, if you're not a coach. I know a lot of people listening are just really passionate about these realms, these deep inner realms, deep transformation, self-actualization, all of these kind of things. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Hetty Einzig, and she is a an executive coach, a leadership coach. Uh, she's the author of the book, The Future of Coaching, which I really enjoyed, which really has this message of challenging the coach as being a neutral entity. Uh, she invites a kind of prov- the provocateur or the, the jester even, I think she names it. So we'll talk today about her work in these times. We'll talk about her work with Sir John Whitmore in the early days of coaching as it formed. And we're going to go into two topics in more detail, I think. One is uh, becoming a trauma-sensitive coach, something we talked about with David Trelevin a while ago, and Hetty is also a big advocate for that. And then we'll talk about systemic coaching and the imperative that coaches develop some sense of systemicness in their coaching that we're not just focused on the individual entity we're actually there's a lot more information uh, and transformative potential that we can open up as we include the systems that our clients are embedded within within our coaching so i hope you enjoy it as usual if you're not on our mailing list and you're just listening via spotify or some other place you can sign up you can stay in the loop about other offerings by going to our website coachesrising.com and I'd love it if you share this podcast and if you leave a review and so that all being said here is the podcast with Hetty Einzig. I first came across your work when I read The Future of Coaching which I really enjoyed actually uh it really spoke to me. And we'll talk about that book a bit today, I'm sure. I'd just love first, Hetty, if you could just tell us a bit about, yeah, how long have you been in the field of coaching and, and what's the kind of work you're doing with people, particularly in these times? I think that's an interesting question. Yeah. Wow, it's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've been in coaching a long time. I... Um, I've worked with some of the great early coaches and that's a privilege and has informed a lot of my thinking really. Who do you mean by that? So I worked um, with John Whitmore uh, and collaborated with him from for, for the you know for about over a period of probably more than 10 years and with John developed the model of transpersonal coaching and I'll say a bit more about that and then I also worked with coaches Christopher Connolly and John Sire they uh, created their coaching uh, organization around about the same time that John built performance consultants with David Hemery and David Whitaker and they were all from the world of sport and John Sire and Christopher Connolly Uh, were very deeply trained in Gestalt psychology and transpersonal psychology. So there was a real affinity. So although they were two separate firms, um, I I became very close friends and colleagues with all of them. So I first worked with 
with John and Christopher, and their, their organization was called Sporting Body Mind. And the idea um, that um, our inner mental models, the way our psyche worked, our emotions, uh, uh, drives and unconscious material could be affecting was affecting our behavior and the decisions we made and the way we operated in the world and the relationships we had wasn't new it came along with freud but it wasn't being used much in the coaching world and of course the grandfather of that was timothy galway who i had the privilege of meeting uh, later much later when he was much older and his inner game the idea that our the opponents within us the stories we tell ourselves or the the way our inner critic beats us up is much more fearsome, much more to be feared than any opponents or challenges out there. So those, that was very influential. And, and John Whitman was also trained in the transpersonal. That's how I met Christopher Connolly, in fact, through psychosynthesis. So there was a lot of overlap and interaction between all of these people as the idea of executive coaching was built. How could we take these ideas into organizational life and particularly into the corporate world. Could we have an influence on uh, what was at the time seen as the great monster really? You know, the corporations were seen as an extension of factory life, you know, that, that people were being um, dehumanized, that they were being crushed, that their, their well-being was being compromised in service to goals that they often didn't share, that they were targets that were generally founded on financial imperatives, rather than visionary goals that encompassed or, or, or enabled the fully human, all, all that the humans could be. So they were pioneers, really. And I, 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 I talk about them at length in a way, because I think they should be honoured, because I think their legacy is with us today. You know, so when I worked with John, for example, we used to go, you know, all over the place running programs. This is John Whitmore I'm talking about. And uh, he spoke on many platforms and he used to say to me, I can say things because I'm old. I have a grey beard and I have a title. He was an inherited peer, Sir John Whitmore. And he said that you can't say because you're a young woman. Um, you know, maybe one day. And it was, you know, we used to laugh about it, but it was true. You know, we, we lived at the time in a, in a still a very sexist world where if you were young, that, that in order to be a thought leader or a leader of any kind, you had to be grey haired and preferably have a beard and preferably a white male and preferably middle class. Um, so I think, again, you know, we used to talk about those sorts of issues and how important diversity was and how you know, how essential it was to change, that that was an element of changing the world. So all these issues are alive today. And, and John used to address bankers really, you know, he was really tough and say things like, well, you know, let's be honest, you're really gamblers. You know, you're gambling with other people's money and therefore other people's lives. And, you know, the audience would sort of stop in shock. <laughs> I remember when he... He talked to the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, along similar lines and, and you know, very, very hard hitting. So that's the legacy. And, and those are the sorts of streams of uh, the themes and, and streams of consciousness, if you like, that, that, that 
that influenced me. So the idea of bringing the body in, mental models and, and our unconscious, going back to psychotherapy, and, and also being challenging. So you, you'll remember in my book, there's, a, there's a, a whole chapter in a way dedicated to the legacy, I think, of John Whitmore, which is around playing the fool. How do you yeah. speak truth to power? One of my favorite bits. Uh, yeah. Provocateur <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think all of those themes are really relevant today. They're really ones that we're grappling with, you know. Um, and I would include, obviously, now, of course, the climate crisis, um, biodiversity loss. Uh, and so I think that, that, that I'm very I'm grateful, really, for my early grounding in psychotherapy, because I think a lot about trauma, climate trauma, uh, the legacy of trauma. You know, and I know that uh, we talked earlier about Thomas Hubel as a, as a great visionary of our times, um, a great transformer. And I know that he works a lot with the legacy of trauma. You know, and and he's he's originally, I think, is it either Austrian or German? I'm, I'm not entirely Austrian, sure. I believe. Yeah. Austrian. Yeah. yeah. And my my mother was German and came to this country as a refugee from the Second World War. So, of course, you know, that's something I grew up with, a uh, very close uh, lived experience of the legacies of that wound, which isn't just a European wound. I mean, it's had, it's, it's, it's a global, a global wound. And, and I think probably linked in many ways to the climate wound, to the way we have, you know, we may be, are reluctant to wage global wars, although we still don't seem reluctant to wage wars on other people's territories, um, you know, <laughs> as ways of fueling the, uh, the armaments economy. Um, but we do wage war on our planet. We seem to be unable to see or it's very difficult for us to acknowledge just how destructive human beings have been and are. So I think there's a thread there around um, the language of war, which mm -hmm. Charles Eisenstein is very good at uh, talking mm -hmm. about and how we seem to, we will never change our mindset until we change our language. I'm a linguist by, mm -hmm. by training. I did languages at university and it's something that I care and think is really important, I care a lot about. If we continue to use the language of war, we will continue to see everything as a battle to be won. Mm. And, and that takes us down, I think, a not very fruitful path. There's the way we talk about the coronavirus too, is, you know, yeah, war with absolutely. this. And, um, I One, two, couple of things I'd love to ask you about this idea of trauma and ecological trauma. Just, just note, noting that, I really like how John Whitmore saw his privilege and actually used it as a force for good, you know, because I think privilege has become a bit of a dirty word almost, you know, and, and um, I get why the, the reasoning behind why it's being pointed out and, and there's good change happening. And, you know, we can use our privilege as a force for good in the way that he did. So I'm, I'm just curious for you, uh, you know, how you see, this idea of trauma and ecological trauma, these times we're in, 
And if that plays out in your coaching you're doing with leaders at the moment, you know, do you find that people are becoming more open to the idea of discussing, discussing like this intergenerational trauma or streams of trauma and how that impacts our leadership and the way we relate to one another in the world? Two good questions. So privilege and trauma. Let me address privilege first. Well, to say about trauma, I still think it's a hard conversation to have. I, I think it depends on the context. It depends on the person you're talking to. When I talk with coaches and you know unfortunately all of us um to some degree live within our echo chamber don't we we talk to people who we have affinity with uh we spend time with people who we can have rich and nourishing conversations with and they tend to be with people who maybe not think exactly like us but 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 are, but are going in a similar direction and that's you know that's important and nourishing and growthful, but it's also to be, we need to be alert to that because we can imagine that the whole world is going in the same direction, of course it's not. So I think it's important to put ourselves in, in contexts where we may listen into or have uh, the difficult, the more difficult conversations with people who don't think like us. So it's a, that, and I'll come back to trauma. I think privilege is, is, is something I do think about quite a lot. I'm doing um, uh, uh, a lot of um, work with people who work in the environmental sector, whether that's environmental protection, conservation, or um, uh, yeah, or, or other um, uh, areas, and I'm. For example, designing a program at the moment with colleagues for emerging leaders uh, in environmental protection, most of whom, it's all in French speaking, I speak French and so I, I work in both languages, and, and most, most of them come from Africa, the Mediterranean basin. And we address this very early on, you know, I am a, a white woman, uh, come from a very privileged background, I live in a country that's very privileged, I live in the UK, is this appropriate? And I think, you know, and, and the, the, the answer came back very strongly that it's how we use our privilege and how we offer it in service to the growth and development of others. And whether we do it as much from a listening place and a learning place. So thinking in terms of we're all a learning community, um, we have things that we take for granted from our education or from our experience. Uh, skills that we can offer in service to um, so there's a certain that, that there's, a, there's a nuance there about privilege and, and you're right John very much had that perspective um, and I, I invite all of us not to get to um, not to tie ourselves in knots and not to get trapped into that kind of it's almost like a cozy place of feeling guilty there's a lot that we could feel guilty about, but better to use that energy in as an impetus to serve and to, to offer and to, and to do good work. So that's a comment on privilege. Um, and I think it's the same, you know, that's, it, it lies behind the work I do with women, with women leaders, mm. to help them move away from a stuck place of either feeling 
sense of victimhood or outrage or being silenced and to say, how do we access that deeper sense of power Mm. that comes from within and to use it not to not to replicate old models, old alpha, alpha models of power over, but to reinvent the rules, to change the rules and to say, you know, to use your power to empower others and so on. So it's a similar, there's a, there's a same uh, awakening work, if you like, awakening and empowering work that, that, that I do with colleagues uh, working with women. Um, trauma is, is a difficult one to talk about because I, ha- I have that conversation with other coaches and I think they welcome it especially coaches perhaps like ourselves who work in these cutting edge areas, you know, these leading areas. I I used to run something called the Parenting Forum. So a long time ago, I worked um, for many, for many years as the director of something called the Parenting Education and Support Forum. And um, I used to engage with government. I I was involved in, in helping craft family policies and, and, and so on, and getting the importance of a systemic approach to bringing children up as the smallest democracy, really, the family is the smallest democracy, and getting away from, you know, heroes and baddies and mm-hmm. good and evil and all those sort of things, you know, there were good parents and there were bad parents, getting away from all that nonsense and actually taking a more systemic look. And I remember a conversation with, with a colleague once who said, um, one of the problems, the difficulties that we have working, and I'll just stick to the British government because it's the one I know better, is that they've all been traumatized by being sent to public school from a very early age, ripped away from that civilizing, that close, intimate uh, relationship with a parent, whether it's a mother or a father, or if you're lucky, and, and hopefully both, or caregivers, other close caregivers which builds the resilience, the inner resilience and the inner resources. It enables us to access compassion, kindness, empathy. All of that gets wired in through our earliest relationships. If you rip a child away from that, at the age, in, in some cases in, 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 in England, um, at the age of five or eight years old, you, you are effectively creating you, you know, you're cutting, you're creating trauma because you're cutting people off from that delicate, delicate work that, that builds the strength. And, and then they become leaders because perhaps, you know, there's, there's trauma that's being played out there. So I think it's quite interesting when we think about how do we talk about trauma in a way that people who have been traumatized to become either political leaders or leaders of industry or leaders of big organizations who have that kind of influence on the shape of the world and what happens to us all. How do you talk about trauma with people like that? And I think that's, that's a big conversation of our time. How do we coaches, because I strongly believe that coaches can make a massive contribution by bringing these kinds of understanding, doing deep work, and then finding ways to relanguage it, to talk about these things, and to enable people to have access to this work in a way that's accessible, 
Mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't sort of re-traumatize. Because I will remember an early my early days when I worked as a psychotherapist, I remember having a, a client who had been sexually abused within her family. And she had come to me for, for therapy, but she wasn't really ready to address the trauma of that. So this was the first time she talked about this. So it was a really big deal. And I, in retrospect, well, I pretty much realized immediately, made a mistake. I mean, we all make, you know, this is, this is how we learn, of naming it and saying, you know, this is effectively, you know, you were abused within your family and this is, must be incredibly traumatic. And she wasn't ready. You know, for her, that was the normal because that's what she grew up with. Right. right. And she ended the therapy there very quickly thereafter because she wasn't ready to be able to stand back and even contemplate, even begin to name what had happened to her. So I was moving too fast. And it, I never forgot that. It was a very good lesson for me. And I can only hope she went off, she went on to get the support she needed in the way that was more digestible, if you like, or accessible for her. But it was a very good lesson for me. We have to mm. find ways to talk about these things that don't then re-traumatize. You know? Yeah. It, it has me think about the question of how the coaching field is evolving. As I hear you talk about privilege in the way you did and about trauma, um, I, I totally agree. I think it's an imperative for for coaches to become trauma sensitive, you know, and, and to recognize, to get informed, you know, about what are the do's and don'ts and when do I know where my, my limit is, you know, am I, I'm not a trauma specialist, but at the same time, we're recognizing that everybody's walking around with trauma, big T or little T trauma, you know, from their lives. And even at the moment, we're living in this time, which is very intense and traumatizing, as you mentioned, with um, the environment, the ecological crises, but also with, I think, the coronavirus, COVID, it's amplifying the potential for people to become traumatized. And so that's one area where I think the coaching field is evolving. So that, that question of like, how, how do you see the field evolving? You talked about the earlier work you did and um, with these people you work with, and it must be in a very different place now. What do you think? Yeah. How do you see the field evolving? What's the role of coaches in these times? Yeah. Um, so I think you said something really important there, the potential to be traumatized. So, you know, life is full of bad things. Bad things happen all the time. Scary things happen. Upsetting things happen. The critical elements that, tra- that, 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 that traumatize, that, that lead to a traumatic response mm. are a feeling of impotence. Right. Or and, agency. Yeah. Or agency, yes. Yeah. Not, have, not having that sense of agency, not being able to either run away or to fight. And so becoming trauma sensitive involves being very alert to people's reactivity. Do they react to quite small stimuli with a fight response or 
a fleeing response. And thirdly, that freeze response. And you see the freeze response when I see it in, in meetings where somebody gets very aggressive or loud or starts shouting or banging the table. And you'll see certain people will freeze. They'll just go very still. Their eyes don't move very much. The color often goes. And you can look for that freeze response, which is the, the response of very small mammals, you know, a baby deer knows how to keep very, very still. It's not good for mammals because blood stops going to the brain. And so, so it's not very good for human beings because we stop thinking uh, with all of those responses. But that doesn't mean that everything that's bad will automatically traumatize. So a lot of that's to do with, you know, how do we intervene? How do we enable people? How do we really listen and hear people? So one of the things we know from... Uh, people who've been in really scary, terrifying situations like a car crash or plane crash or, or war or is the need to be listened to over and over and over again, to be witnessed, to be heard, to be seen. And that doesn't mean we can take away the potential of trauma, but it's, it's a mitigating, a healing approach. And coaching is very good at helping people see where they can have agency. It's one of the things we're trained to do. Coaching is very much around, okay, so, you know, I'm going to caricature it a little bit. You know, what's your vision for the future? Like, what are your goals? Where do you want to go to? What's the direction of travel? How are you going to get there? Let's look at, you know, where you can have agency. What, where can you, what can you change? What can't you change? you know, circles of influence, circles of control, circles of concern, all of those sort of things, those sort of models. So I think that's one thing to say about coaching. Um, what I say in my book, and I, I, I continue to say it, is I think that we need to think of coaching a little bit more like the iceberg model. We need to, we need to have a very deep training and then find ways to translate that into ways of working that in a sense normalize uh you know one of my teachers used to say say it without a significant voice you know <laughs> you can do you can you can you can do a guided visualization or a guided meditation without talking like that you don't have to you know you don't have to um be significant in inverted commas to talk about important things mm. and to guide people to territories or over the bridge into new new territory if you like in a way that could be helpful and effective for them so i think that um and i'm not alone in thinking that that, that coaches more and more coaches will and already are getting themselves trauma training uh there's a there's a there's a trauma specialist called julia vaughan smith for example who has written a very good book about coaching and trauma saying, you know, let's not be frightened of this, that, you know, and her model says we, all of us, every single human being on this planet has what she calls a healthy self. And as a coach, we'll address most of our work to the healthy self, but being aware that there may be a traumatized self. And we, we you know, we kind of take care of that, but, but that it's not, the, the traumatized self is not the one that's going to change or enable a more healthy, perhaps effective engagement with the world today. So you've got these different selves that, that Julius Vaughan-Smith talks about, and I think that's a very helpful model. 
I've shared that with many coaches in, mm. in both super supervision and in training, and they find that helpful. So um, I think I've gone off track a little bit, have I? Or my yeah, answer? Well, well, I was asking you. About this? Deeper and wider. Deeper and yeah, wider, I think. How, how the field is evolving, yeah, and how coaches' yeah. roles, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, wider as well. I think you don't need to know the ins and outs of hedge fund trading to work with someone, you know, hedge fund management to, to work with someone who works in the financial sector. You don't need to know the ins and outs of, you know, engineering for to work with an engineer. But I do think that we need to broaden our training, both deeper, like, for example, trauma training, and perhaps, you know, deeper, like systems thinking is... Mm. Is, is a really, in my mind, one of the critical areas we need to expand our thinking mm. so that mm. we're not just focused on the individual all the time. We're seeing the individual within their context, within world issues, within what's going on. Yeah, because could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think this yeah, is something sorry. that, yeah, I think it's a, a really important point and perhaps we could tie it to the ecological sort of yeah. situation too. Yeah. Uh, and it's something in the summit that you and um, Giles Hutchins and uh, Peter Hawkins yeah. uh, were talking about. But um, yeah, I think th this was been one of the ideas for me that I, I think is really opening things up for me quite quickly. Uh, this idea of working systemically. So yeah, like just say what you, a bit more about what you mean by Well, that. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's absolutely critical um, because well, all sorts of reasons. One is your coaches already, if you work with a client who, who is a member of an organization and that organization is paying you to coach that client, you're already working within a system. And if you don't pay attention to the system, you're in danger of just focusing on the well-being, the goals and the ambitions of that one person. Um, and ignoring both the influences of the system on that person and the capacity of that person to influence the system. So you're playing small in a sense, you're, 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 and, and dangerously ignoring a whole number of different factors and elements. It's not that you can't do that, you know, you can do really good work. But as Peter always says, Peter Hawkins, you know, what does your team need you to learn? What does the organization need you to develop in order to serve the bigger system. So that's one, that's one element about systems thinking. We've really got to pay attention. And, and all boundaries are porous. We think of boundaries, we always draw our models with nice straight lines, don't we, or, or, or curvy lines, but, but full lines. Every line should really be dotted in, in a model because energy is going in and out. I will have an influence. A leader, you know, just to, to, to remind us of the blindingly obvious is that our first experience of leadership when we're born is our parents or our caregiver. And we are programmed, it's in our DNA, it's biological programming to look towards that caregiver, that parent for guidance as to how we need to be. So we attune as babies, we're finely attuned to the leader. And that doesn't stop. That doesn't change. Our very survival depends on that. You know, so if our, if our lead, if our parent is anxious or distressed, we will attune to that. And we will either become distressed and anxious ourselves, the baby becomes distressed and anxious and fretful and can't settle. Or as the child, as the baby grows, often 
takes a soothing role you know, mm-hmm. to smile, to please, how do I, and so on. And we keep that for the rest of our lives so that a leader, whether a leader likes it or not, their team is attuning to them. So there's that porous energies going in, energies going out. In terms of ecologicals, everything is, is, is an ecology, just as a tree is an ecology with lots going on below the ground, the mycorrhizal networks and so on, the roots, the sap going up, you know, as a whole, and all the insects that thrive and live on the tree and so on. And a, 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 a forest is an ecosystem. You know, it's, it's all those interconnections. It's no different for human beings and human beings within families, teams, contexts, societies, uh, com- communities, and so on and so on. And uh, I've been saying recently, the sooner we learn to think like a tree, the better the world will be. You know, it's, it's, we're not separate. We have to start seeing ourselves. And some of us have made that mindset shift. But many of us still see human beings as separate from nature, as something that we either do good to nature or we extract from nature or we exploit nature, you know, and those are the bad things. And we all know that that's bad now. We all need to change them. But can we move from a sort of restorative mindset, doing good to others, doing good to nature, restoring the damage we've done, to a truly regenerative mindset, which says we are part of nature. And when you take that attitude, you can actually begin to park your guilt and your shame or our guilt and shame that we might carry as humans for all the damage we've done and start to think much more creatively and joyously, how do we interact in a regenerative way with nature? Uh, and natural systems, because we are part of that. We are a system. So, so it's, it's a sort of mindset shift. And I, I just, you know, might as well plug some, some of my teachers and, and, and what has inspired me. So one of the best, I think, one of the best writers on systemic thinking. So Charles Eisenstein, I've already mentioned, and he's very good at, at, at encouraging us on that mindset shift on that journey. But, uh, but another, another author I love is a woman called Donella Meadows. I might have already mentioned her. I might have mentioned her during that conversation with Peter and Giles. But she sadly died much too young. And, but she's left a legacy of really lucid, stimulating, fun reading. I mean, she's, a, she's dynamic. She's dynamite. And her sort of signature paper is called Dancing with Systems. And I just love that, you know, let's dance. Let's not, let's not get too hung up. So I, I commend Donella Meadows. She's often called Dana Meadows um, to you. And the, you can find her, there's a website been set up in her honor and they make freely available many of her papers and her talks. So there's another very good paper called Leveraging System. Where do you interact? And the highest point, the point that will have most impact is mindset how do you help shift people's mindset and that's coaches are in the business of that aren't they we're, we're in the business yeah and the other the other book i read recently was there's a really i found it a really good bedtime read is the overstory by richard powers it's a novel 
it's a bit fat. So if you don't like fat books, I must say I don't normally read fat books, but it's <laughs> I actually found it a great read. I know some people don't get on with it. But because it's such a big read, you know, you read it over whatever it is, you know, two, three, four, six months, you kind of get into it. And he writes in a very sort of almost like stream of consciousness kind of way. And by about halfway through, you know, you're thinking with the trees, you're down with the trees. It's about mm. a set of characters, but really it's about the trees that they love, they die, live for and die for. And um, it's, um, yeah, Richard, it won the Pulitzer. Uh, Richard Paz won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's not just me that thinks it's a good book. <laughs> well, um, I'd love to ask you to point us a bit more to this this way of seeing systemically because I found it very powerful just in those reframes you offered like what does my team want with me or what does the company want with me or what does life want with me uh, what does the environment want with me and when you said the difference between um, restorative and regenerative it's like I actually think one of the things I'm exploring is like how um How's the field of coaching changing, the field of leadership? How are we being invited to fundamentally change the way we see and construct our world in order to bring about more wise, compassionate, sustainable ways of being on the planet and leading? And I felt a shift. As you point those things out, I started to feel my sense of identity shift already. You know, on a fundamental level, I could feel it opening up. And I could feel a kind of sense of interconnection and I could feel contrasted to that. Perhaps the, the, the way I've been brought up, which is to, to kind of consider myself as this um, separate boundaried entity. And that's true on an, on a body level, but actually the more I've done my meditative meditative work and my spiritual work and this systemic work, it's like, no, that's a misconception. And there are many cultures, indigenous cultures, that would that see the world in a very different way. They, they, their identity is made from their connection to the mountain that they're looking at. You know, it's it's like a vote. It's it's like a, a co-arising. You know, and so I'm 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 curious about how the ways we've seen change and held change and this individual hero in coaching you know and there's many I'm, I'm mocking it but there's a very there's a very good side to like autonomy and individuation but how are we being invited to to hold the nature of change itself in a different way and that's what i feel opening up as you point out these things so i i, I just love it. if there's anything that brings up for you if you could point us more into this way of how, like how could we bring it in our coaching you know how, what I think kind of, you put it very well and I'm really glad you brought mindfulness in because yeah. another way to think about mindfulness training is it's it is building your systemic muscle because when you start being mindful and you start being still you get a real sense of being part of the universal and that fine sense of listening, that fine sense of feeling, of watching your being, learning to be able to not, I mean, in, in psychosynthesis and transpersonal coaching, we talk about disidentifying. It's not the same as being detached. Mm. And that's a really important point to make. You can be 
passionately supportive and care about something, but be unattached or non-attached to outcome. And And that's a really wonderful gift that we gain from any kind of mindfulness practice. And again, I don't think we need to be precious or significant or woo-woo about it, you know. If running is your thing, learn to run with consciousness, just being awake and alive, watching, seeing, the seasons change, the same river that you run past, whatever it is. Those are all mindfulness practices. So there's a whole range of things. So I think that that is really good. And I think mindfulness has now become, I would say, pretty much mainstream in the coaching profession. I think most coaches I know do some kind of mindfulness practice. And again, I'm as I say that, I think, ah, oh, maybe this is echo chamber time again. You know, maybe I only mix with coaches who do that kind of thing. But I do, I do think that, you know, I teach and talk for about 13 years on the coaching, uh, the executive coaching diploma at the Irish Management Institute in Dublin, uh, a wonderful place to, to work. And um, I've watched, you know, that, that whole course is set up with a foundation of mindfulness, because that's what being more self-aware is all about, really, isn't it? Becoming aware of self, of other, of context, of the energy flowing in them. I think the notion of service leads us as well to systemic thinking. Right. So that idea of what is, you know, what am I here to contribute? I talk a lot about contribution in the book. You know, what's my part to play? What's my drop in the ocean? And starting to think like that is very helpful. For me, what's been, I guess, a complete foundation stone for me was being... um, discovering transpersonal psychology in my psychotherapy training. And that is completely a whole systems model, which says, you know, past, present and future are all connected. Mm. There's a thread and we don't necessarily as coaches want to dive deeply into the past, but we are mindful of it. We see where the past might be influencing how we are today or indeed blocking Mm. what we want to achieve today or in the future. And we look a lot in transpersonal coaching at, as it were, and, you know, I I think it's Giles who talks about leading from the future. And we would talk in transpersonal. It's a very transpersonal perspective to take. It's what is the future asking of us? Where do we, what, what is, how is it inspiring us? How is it drawing us like a magnet towards it? What in a sense, and, and we talk a lot in, um, creative ways of working, for example, with pain, crisis and failure. What is seeking to emerge through this painful time? What needs to transform? So, you know, one of the models that John and I developed, John Whitmore and I developed, is called um, the, uh, what is it called? It's called the two perspectives of growth or the two dynamics or the two two paths of growth. And it's a very, very simple model, which is in no way reflective of the complexity of the truth, but it talks about, you know, we develop in a quantitative way, in a sense, through our lives. We get older, time passes, we get more education, then we get jobs, hopefully. You know, we acquire possessions. It's a sort of quantitative, accumulative path along that 
lateral, uh, sorry, horizontal axe. And then there's the, the vertical axe, which we might call the qualitative. You know, we, we deepen our sense of being alive. Uh, we, 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 we look towards uh, what, you know, beliefs, questioning, deepening our sense of, of, of existence, of existential uh, engagement. And that might, that might also be a spiritual uh, development. And each one of those paths hit, hits its own particular crisis. So on the horizontal axis, we hit the existential crisis. You know, why am I here? What's it all for? What's the point? And that looks different to, you know, some people it's a big crisis, other people it's a slow creeping grayness, if you like. And that causes us then more towards that midline, which is that, that sense of our true purpose, if you like, our authentic mm -hmm. sense of self. Mm. Remember, these are all models. And then the yeah. vertical axe, the spiritual axe, will hit the crisis, what we call the crisis of duality, that horrible feeling that our vision for how the world could be, how beautiful the world could be. Charles Eisenstein works a lot around that crisis of duality because he has a tremendous vision. Uh, and Thomas Hubel would be very mindful of that. It's the gap between the vision of how beautiful the world could be and the feeling of how terrible reality really is, the cruelty, the darkness, the waste, the destruction, the ignorance, and so on, the violence. And that, that gap sends, can send people into a sort of crisis, a sort of paralysis, a sort of feeling of, again, what's the point? You know, I'm going to go and become a... A Buddhist in a monastery or sit on top of a mountain and meditate and that's often when people withdraw from action and I guess as coaches and with coaching my my ambition or my, my aim my, 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 my purpose my intention is to enable people to stay engaged and to realize that every single one of us has something to contribute and to find what that what the, the, that authentic voice that, that feeling of yeah. What's fine? There's something very, I'm curious what you think about this very generative or regenerative in that gap, I think, uh, like evolutionary tension between our highest realizations and potentials and what we see for the world and where we are. And I wonder if we're moving into an era where coaches are being invited. You talked about mindfulness to um, cultivate a kind of presence and, and you also mentioned being non-attached to outcome I think that's an activating principle here that we're being invited to cultivate the kind of presence that can allow our clients to be with that that gap the the tension the future that's that's wanting to emerge and in a way that um, it's it's emerging we recognize that it, it's emergent, you know, and that we actually um, need to get out the way on some level, not completely, but on some level, we want to become almost like a container for that emergence to take place with our clients. And that's the deep work we need to do as coaches. Can we, can we become connoisseurs of that emergence in our clients? And perhaps that we see that this is the way that, um, Maybe there's a kind of, we recognize the organic nature 
of of growth you know and perhaps that we we might have held it as coaches in a way that's a bit too linear you know of course there is a there is if you look back you see a kind of sense of time and linearity i don't know what the word is linearness but um but actually um yeah that it's in a sense it's all emerging out of this moment and crystallizing into manifesting into form in some sense anyway let me volley that back to you i don't know yeah things up in you yeah linearity i think is the word linearity. i'm not sure but yes. i mean i think that's the word yeah moving from linear to flow moving from linear to cyclical these are big mind shift, mindset shifts and you know you made a point earlier which is so important the reason these are hard to make is because they challenge our very sense of identity you know we have to shift who we think we are i'm not this incredibly important individual i'm part of something bigger which is very beautiful in a way, but it's a hard shift to make if you're very attached to being a very important individual. And some people are less attached and some people are more attached. But, but yeah, I mean, I, hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's powerful stuff. You use the word connoisseurs, which was very beautiful. And the word that came to mind for me, and we, we talk about this, I, I worked for, for, for several years with the Pachamama Alliance. And we set up in, in the UK an organization called Be the Change You Want, you know, be based on the Gandhi quote, Be the Change You Want to Be. And we used to talk in the Pachamama Alliance about being a midwife, a midwife for the new that is seeking to emerge. So it's not like you have to, you know, push or do something you have to you know as you say create those containers and assist what is seeking to emerge and you know the idea that we're neutral in all of this is 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 really a fallacy i think we coaches have to get beyond those early doctrines that said you're as a coach you're only following the client's agenda um that doesn't mean you disrespect the client's agenda with the greatest respect and a level of humility. We may be there to help expand the client's agenda, to question their own agenda, because the reason they've come for coaching, whether they know it or not, is because they're seeking change. They're seeking either to remedy something that isn't working or to develop something that they want to develop or to change something either within themselves or around themselves. That is the, that is the, the impulse of life. That's the impulse of, yeah. How, how Go ahead. You, Go ahead. Yeah. How do you find yourself doing, I know, of course, it's very specific to each coaching moment with each person. The way you might challenge them is very specific to, to them. But how, do you find there are common ways you find yourself challenging people or themes to that? Mm. Well, uh, everybody, as you say, will have their own ways, but I certainly put challenge up there as a really important gift that the coach brings. And I, I, always, I, I always contract for that right at the beginning. Will it be okay if I challenge you? I'm not always going to take everything you say at face value or, you know, I may, I may call you on stuff. And most people, I mean, I've never, I think, ever, had any clients say, oh, no, don't do that. They all go, yes, please. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm paying. I'm not paying. You know, and I say to people, 
I, I, I have been known to say, look, you don't pay me to be your friend. Mm. You pay me to be your coach. I'm completely on your side. I am your advocate. And part of that is to actually call you out when I think you're not being honest with yourself or when I think you can be better mm. than you think you can or when I think you're maybe not seeing perspectives that might be helpful to you, illuminate. So I'm quite, uh, I talk about engaging with your client in a partnership mm. and that, that can be quite tough because it's quite demanding of the coach. It means that you can't just sit there and ask a set of clever questions. You know, you will be called upon to engage in a, what I call an ecology of thinking, an ecology of thinking. What do you mean by you that? Think, yeah. You think together with your client. Well, we're back to the forest metaphor. A tree doesn't live as an isolated tree. The roots, I, I've just learned about this in a very, very vivid and real way. We had tree surgeons here in our small little garden yesterday taking out two trees which had very tragically died. And I say tragically because I'm a, I love trees. And it was discovered that not all funguses are good funguses, as it were. We, we, it, one of these trees had a toxic fungus called Ganoderma, and this is spread through the roots to a young, healthy rowan tree that we planted. It was a gift from me to my husband. And from one moment to the next, almost literally, it died. You have a young, healthy tree that was toxified through this poison, traveling through the roots underground. And, you know, it was so vivid to me that everything is connected. It's all connected. And the same goes to, for people. The same goes for people. So we can, we, you know, we are having an influence on our clients as coaches. We're having an influence on our clients, whether we like it or not. So we need to be very clear about mm. what kind of influence we want to have and very upfront about it. So I'm very, I'm very transparent with my, my, my clients. You know, I will often say, look, this is, my, this is only my perspective. This is my, you know, what I think I'm seeing here. What I'm seeing here is, but reflect upon it. This is only one perspective. And when people come and say, you know, they've had feedback X, Y, and Z, well, let's look at that. Let's unpick that a little bit. This is all interconnected. What feedback is going to be nourishing and help you change so that you can be more contributive and in service to what you want to be in service to. Because for me, that's, that's the golden rule, if you like, of all ecosystems. Mm. You're either feeding and contributing to the ecosystem in however small a way, or you are contributing to the entropy of that ecosystem. Mm. You know, and whether that's a toxic fungus or, you know, um, or, or a human being who is who is wittingly or unwittingly, knowingly or unknowingly uh, damaging the system or not feeding it or detracting from it or extracting from it without giving back. So those for me is the golden rule is, am I contributing? Am I with all good intention? Because there's so much that's unknowable. Mm. Yeah. Life is also full of mystery. But am I, what am I, you know, am I, with good intention, wanting to help contribute to this system, or am I detracting from it? And I think those are those are really important questions that I challenge my clients on. Mm. Um, you know, and 
that can be very revelatory for clients. I mean, I remember working with one client and he was such a grumpy bastard, excuse my language, but he was really, really angry. He was so angry. He felt he'd been, uh, you know, done over by the company. It was all just to do with share options and stuff. And I said, so why do you stay? And he stayed in the end. So we had lots of very, very gritty conversations and I was pretty challenging. And he painted himself as this really nasty person. He said, oh, you know, they're, they're all angry. They don't like me because I don't get on with the guys in the States. And, you know, I, I believe people are here to do a good job. And they're those lazy idiots, they're not, you know, and he was, like, was always like this. And I challenged him once and I said, I don't believe you. I think you care passionately about things. And I think you care about your people. So, you know, you can cut through negativity often with love, with compassion. Exactly. That, that's you what know, I felt, the love, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's essential, yeah? yeah. And I discovered, you know, quite late on in the coaching, you know, really what he did care about. And the reason he stayed in the job is because he had a whole family network. He was contributing massively to a system outside the company. It was very moving. And once that was validated and acknowledged and he was able to validate himself, you know, he visited his father every weekend and they would take apart vintage cars together. You know, his father lived alone after the death of his and so on and so on. And there were members of his family who, that were disabled and that his wage, his salary nourished this whole network. And he himself, you know, he did uh, coaching for young swimmers. He was a swimming, you know, he gave so much. And initially he didn't bring that to coaching because here we were just to talk about professional stuff. And once he was able to really feel fully seen, heard and validated for this enormous contribution he was making, he was able to begin to bring some of that back into the organization to heal some of the wounds mm. that had been caused. So when I give that as an example of this whole systemic way of thinking, often what's where the heart of the matter is, is not what it seems you know it's not right here in front of your eyes you have to really question much more widely outside the context that you're presented with i'd love to as as we kind of come to um a close just ask you about the key for you of working systemically like how you you know if you were to give some advice now i know that um you know people need if they want to work systemically they want to go away and immerse themselves and really uh you know really learn about it but also you you've brought a, a wealth of experience to this moment here now and i wonder what you would say to people about the key to working systemically or you know um how how you do it even well, let me just give add because i've already said quite a bit which is yeah. you know don't just look under your nose don't just believe what your client brings you um and you usually know something's important when they tell you, you know, with three minutes to go or just as they're leaving the room in the days when we could or, you know, leaving the Zoom session. <laughs> oh, yes, I didn't mention, you know, that's often critical. So remember that and bring it back to the next session. So look widely, explore widely. The, the, and the two further keys, I would say, is one is work across always. Hold in mind the, 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 the four there are more, but just the four deep intelligences of the body, 
mind, body, heart, and spirit. Work in your head, always be thinking, what? where's the spiritual life of this human being? They may not label it as such, but everyone has one. Everyone has something that fires their spirit, that, that, that is their kind of North Star or their, they may not even know it. And maybe that's part of the work is to find that. And then you're working holistically, in a sense, with the whole being. The moment you start to work holistically, you're also tapping out into other ecosystems. And then to borrow the language of systems thinking, think feedback loops. So a system is crudely, it's inputs and outputs, stocks and flows. You know, how do things flow? How do things flow in this system? To start looking at flows of energy. And a feedback, the feedback loops come, come in broadly two types. One is a stabilizing feedback loop. So if you take you know, water into the bath and the flow of water out of the bath, if that's roughly equal, the bath water will remain at the same level. Yeah. So in a system, you've got stabilizing feedback loops. So, you know, something happens, something else happens, and it keeps the system roughly sort of stable. And human beings, just like forests, we quite like stability. We don't want to be permanently disrupted. You know, we need a little bit of homeostasis to kind of gather ourselves. And become. The other kind of feedback loop is called a reinforcing feedback loop. You know, you put money into your bank account and it will make interest. If you put more money in, it'll make more interest, more interest added to the bank account will make more. And so that's a kind of what you might call a positive feedback loop or a reinforcing feedback loop. And we know, you know, one of the, um, if you take something out of the system, you destabilize, you, you create a reinforce. So for example, if you take wolves, you know, when they reintroduced wolves, mm. the rewilding. So rewilding helps to stabilize ecosystems by making sure you've got all those different complex elements. And, you know, a, a, a system, an organic system will be self-organizing. Mm. So, you know, the wolves will eat the deer. If you take a wolf out of a system, out of an ecosystem, those deer will eat too much of the undergrowth and start to destroy. Yeah, and they, they change the shape of the rivers and things. They change it and so on and so on. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So. If you start to think natural systems, I mean, I, you know, a system is dynamic. It's always going to be moving and changing. So get comfortable with that. Get comfortable with complexity. Don't keep trying to simplify. You know, simplicity is beautiful. Get comfortable with complexity. Understand that things are changing all the time. They're volatile, they're dynamic, delicate. So one tiny input here will have quite a big you know the, your client if you're working with your client systemically you're thinking so what needs to change here that could have quite a big impact on the team on the organization you know those little leverage points so dynamic complex self-organizing don't need to do a lot you know forests and ecosystems will will organize themselves and things die they change they morph they merge they develop the new keeps coming. So don't be afraid of, of that. Um, yeah, complex, dynamic, self-organizing. Those are the qualities of, of systems. So if you hold those things in mind, you'll start to see the system and you'll start to ask questions. 
that enable you to see more of the system and enable your client to see how they are influenced by and can influence. And, and like you say, what you're saying is that um, that change is going to be more likely or um, the right kind of um, shift will be more likely if you include the whole system Yeah. rather than just focusing on the individual, you know, and yeah. then there's so much information lost. You include the whole system or as much of it as you can. And then the, the information, yeah, it's much more possible. Yeah. Let me let me add one more thing that um, I've spent a lot of time working with. Um, I've worked a lot with Simon Weston, analytic network coaching, and that network piece is critical. As individuals, and you mentioned hero leaders, we still have a legacy of thinking we need to do everything ourselves. And that's a lonely, tough place to be. And it's also an arrogant place to be. How on earth can one person do everything? So we need to get very good at recognizing the networks we're part of, cultivating them, looking after them, building them, developing them, and utilizing them. We will never make change alone, ever, ever, ever. So that feeds into systemic thinking. You know, really, I, one of the first things I often get my clients to do is I just say, draw a map of your world. What's important to you? Just put on, your, put on the paper, whether it's an image or a word or, you know, draw a map of your world. And then you've immediately got a system. You can immediately begin to say, so where are the links? Where are the patterns? Who do you spend most time with? Who should you be? You know, if you were to spend time with this person over here who you say you don't like, what might change? And so on. So that networked piece is very, very fundamental to thinking mm. systemically. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks. Yeah, I remember talking to Dave Snowden and he talked about the yes. importance of informal networks. Uh, yeah, Kunevin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's critical. It's critical. Yeah. And those informal networks, we talk a lot about intentional networks, building your networks wisely, because you can't spend time with everybody. But giving some thought to that. Yeah, wonderful. Um, well, this feels like a good place to round yeah. up. And I just want to say to people listening that we're going to include all the resources you mentioned on the podcast page. So there'll be links to those. And anything else you want to say just as a closing thing? Don't feel like you have to, or, you know. But, I don't know. Uh, I just, um, I am bizarrely very optimistic. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot that's going wrong in the world, but to despair or to do nothing is not an option. It doesn't serve. And perhaps I, I, I'll just end. I'm, I'm completely, um, two of my favorite quotes, and I'll share these. We can share these on the website. One is by um, a wonderful man called Raymond Williams, who was an English professor at Cambridge University. And he said, the really radical thing is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. So, you know, let's not despair. And then a lovely quote by Noam Chomsky, and I won't quote the whole thing because I'm very bad at remembering the full things, but he said, optimism is the only strategy to adopt because we're more likely to invest time in making the future happen than if we're pessimistic. And it's such a nice way to put it that, you know, if we're optimistic, we're more likely to, to invest time in, in, in building that future 
in, in, in leading from that future that we want to see and envisioning it and, and, and working towards it. And uh, I feel very privileged to be part of the coaching community and to work with so many really wonderful people, many of whom we've mentioned today. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thanks for sharing. I just want to honor your years in the field of coaching and the work that you put out. I recommend people check the future of coaching and um, yeah, you know, thank, thanks for sharing yourself so generously in our conversation today. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Joel. It's been a really lovely conversation. Hello. Hello. Here we are. Just a few words. It's me again, Mr. Monk, Joel Monk. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love it if you'd share it. Uh, you can find share buttons on our podcast pages at coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. If you're not on our mailing list, you want to stay in the loop about things other than the podcast, then you can head to coachesrising.com and on the homepage there, you'll find find a little sign-up box. So until the next podcast, be well. I wish you well, and I'll see you then. Bye. Thank you.